Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Safety and Health Podcast by Safety and Health Practitioner. I'm your host, Ian Hart, and I'm the editor of SHP. On this episode, we have two fantastic interviews for you to enjoy. First up, I spoke to Professor Dr. Andrew Sharman, managing partner of RMS Switzerland, author and president of IOSH, about his experiences during coronavirus and his latest book, 1% Safer. Then, in the second part of the episode, we hear from Giles Rees Jones, Chief Marketing Officer at What Three Words, about how the geocoding system can be used to keep loan workers safe. Andrew Sharma was elected as Irish President in September 2019. As his presidency comes to an end, I was keen to catch up with Andrew about his time at the helm and what is next for him. That's all to come in the second part of this interview, which will feature in next month's podcast. In this part, I spoke to Andrew about his experiences during COVID-19 and his latest project, a collaborative book called 1% Safer, which he turned around in just three months and is out to buy now. Andrew was due to chair a series of large conferences over the summer, but ended up stranded away from his home in Switzerland and contracted coronavirus early on in the pandemic. So how did that affect him? How did he adapt? And what has he learned from the whole experience? to Scotland to see my family at the end of February this year just for four days. Uh, after a couple of days of being there it became quickly clear that I wasn't going home to Switzerland anytime soon and in fact flight after flight after flight home was cancelled and I ended up staying in an Airbnb rental apartment for three and a half months. I managed to contract the coronavirus whilst I was there and, and had several weeks of feeling really quite lousy and uh, not able to do much. But of course, contextualizing that, at the same time, there was an impact on what was going on in my day job too, as a consultant, as clients were pulling back and postponing pieces of work. So I was kind of faced with this new world in in springtime of being sick with the virus, not being at home and being stuck in a rental apartment in a different country to the one I normally live in, and my world of work taking on this radical change. And amidst all of that, I'm kind of thinking, well, so what does this mean for, for me as the president of IOSH? And how do I discharge my duties as president? It's quite a turbulent start to the year. Like we all have, you've had to adapt quite well. I know you had plans to moderate quite a few conferences and events outside your, your normal uh, consultancy work. How did that all change because of coronavirus and switching to digital? And what challenges did you ever have to overcome during that time? We've run a couple of bigger conferences, one called the EHS Congress, which runs every April, and the other one, the Sustainability Leaders Congress, also in April. Both of those were set up to run, and then, of course, at last minute, we had to pull them and turn them into virtual online events. And incredibly, they worked really well. We found the tech worked great for us. We had a lot of people at both events and found them really successful. All of our speakers supported us, and the feedback from both events online was really, really positive. It was kind of exhausting, though, because all this stuff online takes a lot of energy out of us, doesn't it? Because we're kind of always on looking at each other through cameras or, or knowing that we need to, to articulate clearly for a microphone. So thankfully, that's been OK. I was fortunate enough to sit in on the HS Congress that you moderated. And I thought it was a fantastic event and I personally learned a lot from it as well. And I just think people have become a lot more, they've had to become a lot more adaptable. And you sit and watch news footage now and you see people on Zoom calls on news footage. And, and perhaps that's the way it's changed in terms of the way we consume media a little bit more. I and mean, it's not quite as slick and streamlined as perhaps it was once before. And people are used to seeing a bit grainy mobile phone footage and grainy breaking up Zoom calls. And we've all had to kind of adapt and how we look at each other. And is the camera on? Can you hear me? Are you connected? It's all phrases that we're all very much used to now. 
You've obviously been doing quite a lot of your video blogs as well on LinkedIn during your time. And how well have they been consumed by your followers? I don't think that's for really me to judge. I think people looking at them are the best people to say whether they're any good or not. As I suggested, I've tried to rejig the way that I work. So as president of IOSH, I've been recording a video every six weeks or so, and they've been dubbed my co-videos. You can find them online on the iosh.com website forward slash coronavirus if you want to see those things. Where I'm just trying to talk about what I hear in the profession around the world whilst talking to OSH practitioners. In addition to that, I'm, I'm trying to do a blog every week called The Life of the IOSH President, a post on my LinkedIn thread. That's really seemed to have connected with people. We, we get thousands of people each week viewing. I think one thread had 26,000 people viewing it in a week. And the average is somewhere like five, six, seven thousand each week. But it's not just about viewing. It's about participation and throwing in ideas into the mix. What I'm trying to do is stimulate thinking and discussion. Because one thing that I, I guess I notice as a psychologist here, Ian, is, is that we're all missing that human connection. So just trying to find ways for people to unite, to connect, to feel like they're in common company. We're all facing this as a challenge wherever we are around the world. And to try and build a sense of oneness, I suppose. It's interesting to see how you've received a lot of interest in your weekly catch-ups where you sit down with, with five or six safety practitioners and just have a conversation, have a coffee with them, I think is how you, how you phrase it. And again, those seem to have been really well received. What is it that kind of struck you from those conversations? What are people wanting from you? And what are the key strands? What are people talking about? You're obviously talking to a, an awful lot of practitioners. What are they struggling with? What are they coping well with? What have you kind of picked up from those chats? So this is the Let's Talk session that we run every Thursday morning. Uh, it's 10.45 UK time, 11.45 Central European. We put it out on LinkedIn each week saying, this is the next session. It's invite only, so you have to register and take a place. There are only six spaces each week. The idea is it's six guests plus me on a Zoom call for 45 minutes with no agenda. The call isn't recorded. There's no structure to it. It's essentially us standing around a water cooler or a coffee machine having a chat, although we're just doing it virtually. And yesterday I did the 11th one. So we've been running for nearly three months already on this. And it, it feels great. To be honest, I, I probably started it with a bit of a selfish idea. I was just missing talking to people and just having a just having a chat about what was going on. And it seemed that I wasn't alone. Everybody that's been to each of these calls each week has said the same thing. That's what they're missing most. The key themes that are coming out then, well, the biggest one, I suppose, is, is consistent in is that people are recognising that the OSH profession has this amazing opportunity right now as organisations are asking practitioners to help, to guide, to shape, to direct how to get through the pandemic. And that feels good to practitioners because quite often health and safety practitioners are are only asked for help when things have gone wrong. So being pulled into the mix and being trusted, I think, is a great thing. We also can identify a risk here. And the risk is that unless OSH practitioners start weaving in the broader dimensions of occupational health and safety to these conversations that they're having around COVID with their workers and their leaders, then we run the risk of the pandemic essentially disappearing, dominating the, the discussions for a while. And then as it disappears, the OSH practitioner retreats back into the background again. So I think this is a tremendous moment for OSH practitioners to stand up, to show their leadership skills and abilities and the real value they bring, but to make sure they thread in wider aspects of OSH into those discussions so that they keep their seat at the table when the pandemic finally ends. It seems strange, doesn't it, to talk about an opportunity out of something that is so, so terrible and has affected so many people, but I certainly agree with what you're saying. And 
I always think it's very difficult, particularly in the UK. We have a pretty good safety record in the UK, but still not necessarily a particularly good perception and the way it's perceived by the wider public. And I think that is starting to change. And that definitely is an opportunity to be grasped. The wider public and senior leaders in business are seeing safety practitioners now as a lot more valuable in not only to to help get over the crisis that we've had, but also what do we do in the future if we have a second wave or if we have a similar pandemic to future proof our businesses, essentially. And I know you talk a lot about leadership and well-being, and that's a strand which we've been hearing quite a lot in terms of returning to work and reintegrating people into the workplace. There might have been instances where the reintegrate staff that have been furloughed and staff that have been working throughout it. And is there any resentment between those two groups of staff? What would you say to safety leaders in terms of how best to go about that challenge? You know, I'm totally comfortable with talking about the pandemic as both a risk and an opportunity. And I think it's important to keep a weather eye on both sides there. Whilst it's been this tremendous opportunity, I think another hidden risk or a more subtle risk of the pandemic is that it's cultivated a a real can-do sort of attitude amongst OSH practitioners, leaders and workers, whether they're key workers or, or, or any other kind of worker. I think we've all been encouraged to roll up our sleeves and somehow make it happen. And it's that particularly British spirit as well, isn't it? If we think about the UK, that kind of grit and determination, stiff upper lip, No matter where we are around the world, it's that sort of attitude that's been prevailing that's allowed us to find ways through the pandemic. And arguably, I suppose, being cynical has perhaps caused some of the challenges amongst it too. But let's stick to the positivity of the can-do attitude. I think we've all been running 100 miles an hour to try to work out a way through the pandemic. And I think the big risk here around well-being is that we can't run at 100 miles an hour forever. I've spoken to thousands of OSH practitioners over the last few months around the world, and all of them are saying the same thing. I've run off my feet at the minute. I'm completely exhausted. I'm working all hours. And this is a big issue. I watched a movie two weeks ago, and it really resonated with me. And I posted a couple of things on LinkedIn and other places about it. It was called The Fundamentals of Caring. And in the opening scenes of the movie, the lead character, Paul Rudd, the American heartthrob, is being taught how to be a carer for people that need a bit of support. And he's told that the first rule of being a carer is the carer needs to take care of themselves first. Otherwise, they won't be able to take care of anybody else. So that's a message I've been trying to share with OSH practitioners, that OSH practitioners won't be able to lead the OSH dimension of their business unless they're looking after the OSH dimensions of themselves first. So it's really important to think about our own well-being right now. And, And that might just be taking five minutes to sit and meditate or to go for a walk at lunchtime or to make sure that we we don't overindulge on food and drink because we're working from home and we do get some exercise. So I think this well-being aspect is super important and it's as, as important as the well-being aspect connected to the coronavirus itself. You've also been working on a new book, which is due to be coming out soon, 1% Safer. What can you tell us about that and, and how did the idea come about? In that lockdown session that I had in Scotland for three and a half months, I was kind of getting worked up about what I could do to really kind of contribute something to the world of safety and health at work. You know me fairly well, Ian, and I think you know that I'm dead against this idea of zero injuries as a target. As a vision, no one ever getting hurt at work. Brilliant. But as a metric, I think it's a terrible metric. It's binary. As soon as you have one accident, you've failed your target. And knowing that we failed our target and we can never win against that target is a real demotivator and demoralizer. So I've, I've been pushing in all of my books for leaders to think differently about how we measure safety, not by the absence of accidents, but by the safety that we create. And so I had this idea that instead of going for all or nothing, zero accidents or, or nothing's good enough, 
What about if we just use the power of marginal gains? You know, this has worked well for the UK Olympic cycling team under Dave Brailsford. And Matthew Syed in his book Black Box Thinking talks about the same thing. And we've been talking about it in business for years anyway. We just called it continuous improvement. So the idea of 1% safer is if we could just make our business 1% safer every day, the power of that collective gain is extraordinary. 1% improvement every day equals 3,800% improvement over the course of a year. Now, if you put this into context and think of the global picture for safety, there's 2.78 million people dying every year through work-related illness, disease, and accident. Now, that's a huge number, difficult to get our head around. But if we break it down, it's 7,616 a day. Even that number's still a bit hard to get our heads around, but it's 317 an hour. It's one every 10 seconds. Every 10 seconds, someone like you, someone like me is dying at work. And we've got to do something about that. And if we can make the world 1% safer, we save one in every 10 of those people. And that equates to 28,000 lives every year. So that's the kind of concept behind the book. And in a nutshell, Ian, it's got 137 chapters written by 137 different contributors, each one giving their best nugget of wisdom to make organisations 1% safer. And you've got some pretty stellar names. Who are some of the people that you've gone to and asked for help on this project? It went a bit nuts, actually. I started with a dream list of all of my professional heroes, and that included people like Carrie Cooper, Dominic Cooper, Sid Decker, Scott Geller, Isaac Getz, Gert Gigerenzer. In the business domain, people like Marshall Goldsmith, the world's number one executive coach, Edgar Schein, the, the godfather of organisational culture, And then some of the deep experts in safety, people like Andrew Hale, Andrew Hopkins, Eric Holnagel, Patrick Hudson, the the founder of the Hearts and Minds stuff and the the cultural maturity ladder. And then in addition to those, there's senior business leaders, there's people representing places like the World Health Organization, the International Labor Organization, the Vision Zero Program, British Safety Council, IOSH, ROSPA, and places all around the world. There's over 40 different countries represented in these pieces. It's kind of blown my mind. I, I asked 138 people if they'd contribute, hoping that I'd get 100 people saying yes. And 137 out of the 138 said, yes, we'll do it. So I was kind of like, okay, I've got more than I need, but can't say no, we've got to put them all in. So it's, uh, it, it's quite a book. I'm really excited about it. And you've turned it around really quickly. How, do you, how have you gone about doing that? And how do you go about collating uh, the works of 137 people <laughs> into, a, into a readable book that actually flows and makes sense? Um, I guess the easy answer is you don't go to sleep at night. I've, I've been working some insane hours on this. It, it really kind of captivated my imagination that, you know, if we could if we could create this anthology of the world's best thought leaders all in one place, wouldn't it be an amazing thing? How do we make it so quick? We just put a lot of pressure on people and so we've got to get this done. It's got to happen. So we, we, we started at the end of March. We received hard copies of the book yesterday at our warehouse in the UK. Yeah, it's been kind of three and a half, four months in total in terms of turning it round. So we're excited about it. It sounds like a great project. I'm looking forward to seeing a copy. And what can readers expect from it? And who is the book specifically aimed at, if anyone? It's kind of a broad audience, but then it's also tightly defined. On the back of the book, it says, this book's only for leaders, visionaries, and game changers. It's an inspirational handbook for those that believe that people everywhere should go home without harm at the end of the day. I don't want to pigeonhole the reader. But it's certainly a book for those that truly want to make a difference when it comes to safety at work. So it's about focusing on the inputs to getting great safety in order to get the right outputs.
And have you learned anything yourself putting it together, other than the fact that if you don't sleep, put a book together in three months? <laughs> I've learned that the world, perhaps encouraged by the pandemic, has started to become more human and to underline the value and importance of every human being, no matter who we are or where we are. And I suppose that's the collective theme amongst all of the, the contributions in the book, is that we're all pointing towards safety being about people, not being about statistics or accident rates. And when I say safety here, I should probably point out there's loads of articles on health, well-being and resilience too. It's, it's not just pure safety. And how can people get their hands on a copy of this? You can get a copy at the website, 1percentsafer.com, and, uh, and you can order your copies there. And we've, we've got some really cool bundle deals, including some very exclusive artwork, including the original seven-meter artwork that's been designed by the sketching maniac, Edwin Stoop. He's a, a friend and collaborator of mine, and that's available for organizations to buy as well as part of a bundle. And, and, and I should say something that's pretty important here, Ian, is, is that 1% Safer is a not-for-profit exercise. So all profits from the sale of the book go into the 1% Safer Foundation, which is a, a charitable organisation registered with the Charities Commission in the United Kingdom. So all of the money that's made from the sale of the book goes there to help people who have been made vulnerable as a result of the pandemic. So that could be OSH practitioners who have lost their jobs and who need to retrain or reskill. And it also could be those sorts of organisations that may not normally benefit from having an OSH practitioner, such as third sector, SMEs, charitable organisations and so on. So all of the profits generated by the sale will go straight back out, really, to try to help the world become 1% safer. Thank you very much. It sounds absolutely perfect. You know, contributing to a good cause and learning something along the way as well. It sounds like a, a no-brainer to me. So uh, absolutely go and get your hands on, on a copy of that. Uh, it, it should be a great read, I would imagine. It's funny, we asked a couple of people for some cover quotes and I was delighted to, to, to get my favourites, Edgar Schein, Marshall Goldsmith. And then we got a couple that we really didn't expect. I, uh, I, 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 uh, I got home one night to find a, a letter that had been franked Buckingham Palace. And when I, when I looked at that, I thought, my God, what's going on here? And then I looked through the rest of the pile of mail and the second one was franked Clarence House. And I'm like... How's that possible? What's going on? Both of them have got ER2 marks on them with crowns. And I opened them up and one was from the Queen and one was from Prince Charles saying, we've heard about this project. It's really exciting. What a fantastic thing. Good luck with it. And great that you've set this foundation up. What a worthwhile thing. So I'm hoping that it's it's really uh, a chance to do some good and, uh, and people engage with the book and the concept that sits behind it. We'll see all of approval as well. Absolutely fantastic. <laughs> It's safe to say that Andrew has kept himself really busy during the pandemic and has really searched out ways to maintain that human connection, which is so vital for someone in such a public-facing role, but also for everyone's mental health. Andrew also talked about how much he has learned about some of the challenges that fellow professionals have had to overcome just from having conversations with them. I was particularly interested in his thoughts on how practitioners should be looking to embrace the opportunity that the pandemic has provided the profession. There will be a host of tips and ideas about how to do this in Andrew's book. It features some of the biggest names in health and safety from a multitude of sectors, all providing a short nugget of wisdom on how to improve safety in your business. I was fortunate enough to be involved and asked to contribute myself and actually focused on creating common themes or strands in your safety communications in my chapter. As Andrew mentioned, all profits from the sale of the book go directly to the 1% Safer Foundation, an independently governed charitable fund created to provide support. 
It's a great opportunity to pick up a really useful book whilst doing your bit for charity. So go to 1percentsafer.com and order your copy today. Three words has divided the world into 57 trillion 3 by 3 meter squares and given each one a unique three word address. It means a person's exact location can be pinpointed more accurately than a street name or a postcode in the event of emergency. The caller can simply describe precisely where help is needed using just three words. Have you ever struggled to find a friend? Had a taxi take you to the wrong entrance? A package delivered to the wrong address? Or couldn't explain where you were? We developed What Three Words because addressing around the world should be better, and talking about a location can be really hard. Addresses aren't unique, they're easy to confuse, don't point to specific entrances, and for a lot of places, they don't exist at all. People struggle to find each other, and businesses fail to reach customers. It's frustrating, costs the economy billions, and affects lives. What Three Words is a solution. It has divided the world into three meter squares and given each one a unique three word address. It's as simple as saying, lanes larger daring to find that specific location on earth. Around the world, people are using three word addresses for everything, from telling their car where to go and finding that tucked away cottage, to getting deliveries and directing emergency services to the right place. What three words is helping to make the world a less frustrating more efficient and safer place. Three words at a time. What Three Words has been backed by police and is being used by many emergency services to help get resources straight to the scene of an incident more effectively. Several companies we work closely with on SHP, including Thames Water, UK Power Networks, Network Rail and Stay Safe, are all using the geocoding system in some capacity. So I was keen to find out how the idea came about and how What Three Words can be used in the work environment to keep people, especially loan workers, safe. It came about from the music industry. The team are not geographers or mapping specialists. Actually, Chris, who's the co-founder, used to organize live music events in different parts of the world. And he was constantly frustrated with poor addressing because whether you're trying to find, I don't know, gate 57B at the NEC in Birmingham, or whether you're trying to find a chateau in rural France, street addressing is just not accurate enough. And people would end up at the wrong place. So he started using latitude, longitude, and he thought that would be perfect and what could possibly go wrong. And it became apparent fairly quickly that roadies and drummers are not kind of predisposed to remembering 18 digits of latitude, longitude, and they would mix it up and they would end up an hour north of Rome instead of an hour south of Rome because they'd mixed up a couple of the digits. So he sat down with a friend of his who's a mathematician, a school friend, Mohan, and they were trying to work out a better system. And they thought, what happens if we add letters to numbers we can come up with an alphanumeric code but that's almost worse than coordinates so like a anz 421831y for example and there's a few systems out there that do that but there was a dictionary on the table and they thought well what do we need to do to use words and they worked out that three meters by three meters seemed like it was a decent enough size any smaller and you end up with many 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 more in the world any bigger they become not particularly useful so they worked out there was about 57 trillion three meter squares in the world. 
with a word list of 40,000 words, 40,000 times 40,000 times 40,000 gives you 64 trillion unique combinations. That gives you enough to cover the entire planet. So they use that to get bands to gigs on time, but fairly quickly realize that actually addressing covers almost every single part of people's lives, whether you're looking to get a delivery, whether you're looking to navigate somewhere or meet friends or go on a run or whatever it is, actually, I remember an amazing location you took a photograph. Like all of those things require a simple way to talk about location. And so that's what Three Words started and started to get picked up. From a previous role, I was on the road quite a lot, traveling around, and there were at least two occasions I can remember where somebody's gone to the wrong town, because when I get there, I'll look up where the address is, and when they've got to the town they've put into the set now, they've realized that there's two towns called the same name, and they're two and a half hours from where they should be, and, and they've that, got to meet that, for five minutes. Yeah, 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 that happens all the time, and I'm sitting here in London, and if I go to my sat-nav and say, take me to Church Road, it says there's 14 Church Roads in London, which one do you want to go to? And at that point, I've got to pull over. I've got to start pressing buttons. Street addressing is, is inaccurate, but voice and voice input and voice communication becomes really, really problematic. So, yeah, it's, there's huge issues with street addressing, not just in cities and towns, but rural parts of the UK and then, of course, the rest of the world. The UK is one of the best addressed countries in the world, but you go to others and it's really poor. And how did you come up with the algorithm? You mentioned the, the number of words. How did you come up with the algorithm for assigning words to those locations? There's a number of things that go into the algorithm. Now, Mohan is a mathematical genius, and so put the algorithm together. But broadly, what we've done is we put shorter, more memorable words in places that speak that language. We're in 45 different languages now. So everything from Swahili to Russian to Chinese to Mongolian. And then we've put similar sounding word combinations very far apart. This is key. So we wouldn't group table chair lamp, table chair damp, table chair stamp in the same place because the opportunity to make an error and get almost there but not to the precise spot is very likely. So table chair lamp is in America, table chair damp is in Australia. So if you make a slight error, the system will say, I think you meant table chair lamp because you're five miles away from there. So we've got error detection built into the system. And so once you start to put that in the algorithm, then you load in your words and the algorithm distributes the words into the right places. And then they're set and fixed and they won't change. And from the user point of view, you need to have the app on your phone to be able to use the platform or can you do it through a web browser? There's a web browser which you can use as well. And obviously our, our app, which you can use, but we've also been built into a number of other apps. Mm-hmm. So a number of navigation apps like Avenza or View Ranger or NavMe or Pocket Earth. And there's a number of navigation apps that have built what three words in. So you don't need to use our app to use the system. And in safety scenarios, so we're being used by around 80% of the emergency services in the UK. And one of the first questions you asked if you phone up 999 is where is the emergency? And it can be problematic. If you don't have the app on your phone, and you can't share the three-word address of the emergency, what some forces are doing are sending a link. Now, we've developed a very, very small site, and all it does is display the three-word address of where you're actually standing right then. So in an emergency situation, the forces can send a, a text message, click on the link, and then simply read out the three words. And we find that that is really, really helping as well. So yes, you can use our free app, 
you can use many, many other apps that are out there or, or access it through a web browser. And that emergency service is really interesting. That's, that's a really, really, really good way of getting that message and the information across quickly. I know it was quite early on during the conception of the product that it was backed by the emergency services. How important was that for you as a business when emergency service got behind it and gave it their approval? It was fantastic to get that sort of endorsement and know that we are helping to get help to people who need it most. And we know that we've been used to save lives, which is incredibly humbling. It's worth noting that we took a decision early on as a business, try and do good and do business at the same time. So we're not charging emergency services to use the system. So whereas we've got our app, we've also got code. And so businesses are building our code into their own systems. So if you're a navigation app, you take our code and you build it in. And we charge for that service. But the emergency services, NGOs, we don't charge to use the service. So it's been great to know that we're helping. Obviously, it's good for us as well, because more people get to know the system and, and realize the system can be incredibly useful for them and to encourage businesses to use us. So Hermes, the delivery company, have just built what three words into their systems. So if you're looking to get a delivery and you're checking out on a checkout page and people often struggle to find your address, you can add what three words address in and they will deliver to your door now we can make that a much better customer experience but we can also make that much more efficient for a business saving tens of millions of pounds because if i go to the wrong entrance it's a missed delivery i've got to you know circle the building in my car whatever it is it's that costs time and money we ran a couple of tests actually in london and germany where we gave delivery drivers packages with street addresses on and packages with three word addresses on and we tracked them and we saved about 25% of time of a delivery driver's day, which is a significant saving. So that's how the business kind of makes money. We've been built into Mercedes-Benz vehicles. We've been built into delivery companies and navigation apps. But for emergency services and NGOs, it's free service to use. Just focusing on the safety, you mentioned the concept was brought out and you talked there about the cost-saving aspects of finding the right address. Obviously, when you're in an emergency situation, that's getting to the right address in the right time is absolutely critical. And you mentioned that it's been used to save lives. At what point down the process did you realise that there was a, a safety aspect to it when it was kind of being built initially around kind of an address finder? We knew fairly early on that this could be useful. And we had actually started working with the UN and they built us into their disaster reporting tool. But I think it came to the attention of a police officer who saw us in an episode of NCIS, the TV show. Now, weirdly, NCIS built us into their storyline. So one of their team gets kidnapped and leaves a cryptic clue circled in her notebook of three random words. And they're sitting there staring at these words going, I wonder what these mean. And then someone pipes up from the background and says, hey, that's what three words. So they type it into our website, they find her, they send in the choppers and the machine guns and rescue this team member, which was an amazing thing to kind of be part of. But this police officer went, actually, this is a really interesting tool. I can use it to help report fly tipping. And so he started using that just internally and word spread amongst emergency services and more and more people started to use it. So yes, it, it happened early on and it's been used from everything from reporting fly tipping or used to rescue a paraglider that got caught in a tree when he was trying to land to deliver a baby whose mother went into premature childbirth in a park. So it's being used for many, many different instances. You talked earlier about how it had been built into other companies' devices and apps. How would a company use it 
from a safety perspective, particularly to protect workers and, and particularly loan workers? Right. So there's a number of different loan worker apps that have built us in. Things like Stay Safe, My Team Safe or SkyGuard. All of those services have built us in. If you get into an instant, you can press a button. They work slightly differently, but essentially you press a button and that conveys your location. Alternatively, services like National Grid and Network Rail have told all their employees, or if they own the handsets, have forced downloaded What Three Words app to their employees' handsets. So I think Network Rail has got around 40,000 workers and they've all now got What Three Words app on their phone. And they're educated on the system and we've produced a number of assets that help companies teach their employees about the system and how to use it. And then they're told if they get into trouble, they can just use our app to report the incident. We've obviously discussed the globe is mapped out into three by three metre squares. What happens if you're injured or taken and working at height? Is there, is there different coding for different levels or is it all ground level? It's all ground level. So it's GPS coordinates. I think that we've not come across an instance where that has been an issue, but we know certainly when we're being used for deliveries and things like that, people will specify the what three words address of the access point on the front door. But it's a 2D mapping system, just like GPS coordinates. Does it require signal if you're in an underground or a remote location without any internet signal? The system works without an internet signal, but what it does need is a GPS signal. So it needs a clear view of the sky to give an accurate as possible reading. So it works less well indoors and not very well at all underground. So we require GPS, but no data. The algorithm is incredibly small, so kind of 20 megabytes, which means that it can be used on pretty much any handset without a data connection. And just finally then, is there any plans for developing the app or are there any, anything you're looking to do in terms of further progressing how it works? The app has got a number of functions already, which are quite interesting. And one is we've built in a photo feature. So you can open the app and then open the camera and it will take a photograph and drop the three word address of where you've taken that photograph on that photograph. So we're seeing that actually people are using that to tag locations, either personal or for business. So often people are photographing water leaks and sharing on social media to Thames Water, for example, saying there's a leak here and the three word address of the leak is on the image. So that's one thing we're working on. We're adding more and more languages to the system. We've just added Welsh to the system. The other thing we have is we have a scanner on the app as well. So you can open the scanning icon and you can hover over a three word address, which will be recognized and then like a QR code, I guess, but it will recognize the three words and turn that into a location on the map. So we're finding that quite useful on like manifests or kind of written documents where people have got a number of different locations to go to and they can just use the app to scan. And then voice is becoming increasingly important for us. So it's becoming the way that people are inputting data into machines. So we were integrated into Mercedes-Benz cars. So you can get into a Mercedes, say the three words, it will recognize immediately because it's a totally unique combination. It has a high degree of accuracy and the car will go there. And we're finding that particularly useful for emergency services and safety situations because it allows you to communicate a location very, very quickly via radio or via telephone. You can kind of pass that on to multiple teams. So we're working hard on voice. We're being integrated into more and more cars, automotive, more and more kind of mobility apps and ride sharing apps. So the push is really improving our own app, but then 
ensuring that many other places will also accept a what three words address. It's quite interesting what you said there about the reporting of water leaks, the Thames Water, because we speak to a lot of companies who are trying to encourage better safety culture within their organisation and the encouragement of reporting near misses and incidents and making it as easy as possible for that to happen. So members of the public walking past the construction site or a contractor walking onto a site that they don't necessarily affiliated with that company, but they're just there to do a delivery and they see something happen. Maybe someone almost getting hit by a lorry or they see an unsafe act. And a lot of these companies are looking at ways to make it easier for those people to report an incident without going and filling in a load of paperwork. So actually, if you can take a quick photograph of an incident that you see happening and pin it with a three-word address and then easily send that off to the company in question, then actually it was a really quick and easy way of improving that yeah. culture within that organisation. Simply share that through WhatsApp, a messaging platform or email. So that makes sense. I mean, we, we are being used a lot for construction. People like Highways England use what three words for construction, access points, where stuff needs to get dropped, meeting points, safety rally points, stuff like that. So yes, it's, it's being used in construction. As I mentioned in the clip there, I've seen firsthand how easy it can be to end up in the wrong place. And it's even easier when working in remote locations. So having that extra level of peace of mind, knowing that you can let your employer know exactly where you are if entering a hazardous location, or can direct emergency services to your pinpointed location very easily, can only be a good thing. Here is the clip of what three words being used in US TV show NCIS. It is in trouble. Found a hidden message in a book. We think it might contain a clue as to where she is. Failed action skin. What does it mean? It's what three words. It's only a matter of time. What three words is a geocoding system that maps the world into three meter squares, which are each given a unique three word identification. Skin failed action is nine square meters somewhere on the planet. If she left us some breadcrumbs. Let's go get Eddie. I'd like to say a huge thank you to both Andrew and Giles for their time and thank you for listening. Be sure to check out next month's episode where you can hear the second part of that interview with Andrew Sharman. Also, if you've missed the first two episodes of the Safety and Health podcast, you can listen back to those now. In episode one, we spoke to SHP's most influential person in health and safety, Carl Simons from Thames Water. Episode two looked at burnout and how to deal with it from the perspective of an employer, a manager and an employee. If you've not already subscribed, please do so. And please give us a quick review and a rating if you can. It would be much appreciated. Please be sure to stay tuned to shponline.co.uk for the very latest health and safety news. And you can also sign up to our daily e-newsletter. Thank you very much for listening and see you on the next episode. Thank you.